Hey guys, uh, I think we are now beginning the 8th Wikigame Guys Comcast. And today, if you're uh, watching the live stream, then you can obviously see we are joined today by a very special guest, Mr. John Tarr. Yeah, and uh, I am Simon Wu as always. Alex Miller. And we are going to get it started today with our community callback segment. Now, we're actually all three of us in different places. I'm obviously recording from Witness Protection. Actually, no, I'm, I'm just in Washington, D.C. for the week. So I'm glad that my hotel room had Ethernet, so everything worked out right. Oh, nice. So our awesome. first comment this week is from Scumbag Ben, who said, uh, read the ending for Mass Effect 3. It wasn't so bad. It mainly just didn't make sense. At least the extended cut DLC was free. The original ending was frustrating, seeing as I did everything in the game and spent six hours in multiplayer for the first playthrough. Subpar endings are acceptable on low-budget slash short games, but a potential title of the year? No. And uh, basically the same thing here. I played uh, Mass Effect 1 six times to make sure that I got all the best different endings, and then I played Mass Effect 2 twice for the same reason. Then I spent several hours trying to get my galaxy readiness at 100% in all regions and did a lot of research so I could basically ultimately wind up in the same place as anyone else. I was just as disappointed as you are about that. Simon, as, as we've sort of said often, I think about once, in, once a podcast at least, you are an achievement whore, and that explains why you uh, went through and did the, uh, the run-through every time. But, I mean, I'm sure there are thousands of people like you who did the exact same thing and for me it's kind of a slap in the face i mean i didn't even play through as much as you did but i still felt that uh my time was sort of wasted i mean that i mean that's a bit of an extreme because i did have a ton of fun with it but to just sort of do a complete sort of 180 in terms of quality right at the end of the game it's sort of sort of frustrating i just thought that well honestly i haven't seen any of the extended cut dlc stuff yet but uh you know same as you, Simon. I played through the I played the hell out of all three Mass Effects, and uh, the only thing that bothered me about the Mass Effect ending was the lack of variety in the you know the seven different endings or whatever they were. Uh, it's just there was no distinct differences, just slight color palette swaps, and it just I don't know. It just felt uh, like they wanted to like you know. It, up to that point, it was this huge branching path of so many different choices you could make could affect different um, ways that the story would play out with different characters, and then it just all kind of came down to one little funnel so that when they release the next Mass Effect universe, it branches out again. So, I don't know. That, that's just how I feel. Sort of, sort of similar to what we talked about last time, uh, where basically... We were, so we were promised multiple endings where the ending would be affected by all your different choices, but then in the end it was all uh, pick your favorite color sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, Simon and I both, yeah, we both discussed our uh, sort of frustration with that. But, John, you bring up uh, an interesting point there where you're talking about them funneling it in to prepare for the next Mass Effect game. And uh, I know I say this often, but this time I actually will post the link uh, with the podcast whenever we put it out. But I, uh, I saw a link on Reddit once again where uh, it was a screen cap of, uh, I think it was 4chan uh, slash V. And they were explaining how uh, the Bioware guys made a terrible ending for a game intentionally in the hopes of scuppering the Mass Effect franchise to protect the thing they loved from being drawn out in a Call of Duty-esque way and run into the ground. And that made me think, what the hell? 
That's a little conspiracy theory. Yeah, that's that's a little <laughs> bit too much. I, I and don't I, think that they I, thought about put on, it that put much. On my, <laughs> put on my tin hat now. Yeah. Putting, on my, putting on my tin hat. Tin hat. Uh, but yes. <laughs> uh, next from Pigheaded Bo-Bo-Bo-Bo. Just two questions. Did you get to see the Bernie statue? And did Joel make you invest in gold? And to answer the second question first, actually on the first day we ran into Joel pretty early. I think he was actually on his way to uh, Simon. He was on his way to the ESPN booth, right? Yeah, yeah. And so yeah, Simon's yeah nodding his head. And uh, we got a, a quick picture with him. And uh, Simon brought up gold, and I think it was down at the time. And he sort of uh, went into a bit of a bit of a tirade there me, for a little let bit. Let me tell time. you exactly what he said. He was like, okay, so there's there's deflationary pressures in Europe right now. Yeah, you know, Spain's bond yields are above 7%, and then basically SOV is down about 12%, but so far what we're going to see is a market correction, and therefore we're going to see Germany contribute to the EFS, and then basically gold is just going to go up again, and I'm going to be right. I'm going to be right. So, so in short, yes, he did tell I him to invest in gold. I have no idea what you guys are talking about. Absolutely none. <laughs> is is this about the, uh, the 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 conference you drove out to in uh, Austin? Yeah, actually, let's let's talk about that for a second. RTX, um, which we posted the live blogs of uh, both days, as well as recording our previous podcast uh, live from the show floor there uh, last week. And so, um, John, you expressed interest in maybe trying to join us there because Austin is happens to be midway between Atlanta and Denver. <laughs> yeah, well, I've just always wanted to go to Austin. Uh, my dad went to college there, and it's supposed to be a very kind of a very laid back college town, a lot like the place that I went to school at. And I, I love the food, so I, I probably just gorge myself for five meals a day and then, like you know sleep in through the convention, but. Uh, yeah, I've I've never really spent any time in Texas, so I, I want to go down there and check it out sometime. Yeah, we ate a lot of good food there, and also um, probably you guys can get us uh, all of us press badges next year, which means we can skip lines. That's the best part of it. <laughs> yeah, you you said that to me on Twitter, and uh, yeah, whatever I can do to help, man. I mean, I, it was surprisingly easy to get the press badges for E3 this year. So, I mean, if we got them for E3, I'm sure it'd be no problem to get them for... Uh, and we spoke with Barbara, who's the community manager and the person who uh, is responsible for dealing with all those media and exhibitor registration. And basically she said, submit like two articles you've done, your business card and your website, and pretty much anyone can get in with that. And we, oh, okay. we basically already had that anyways. Okay, so I've, I feel like we're neglecting pig-headed Bobobo's other part of the question, which was, uh, yes, we did see the Bernie statue. It was uh, the giant one with him uh, holding the platypus and uh, outstretched can of Foster's. And, uh, yeah, I mean, for anybody who is uh, not really uh, an RTX f- or a Rooster Teeth fan or doesn't know much about it, these are all sort of references to stories they've told on, uh, on their podcast or in their shows or whatever. So it's just sort of... Uh, Little things from their community, and I mean, I'm I'm sure there's crossover, so I'm sure plenty of people of our listeners uh, know all about this. But if not, you know, check them out too. It's funny stuff. But I think so. We should probably move on to the next comment because we're getting uh, into a little bit more uh, referential things. Yeah, I'll read this from uh, KRN. Some time ago, I was listening to the Invisible Walls podcast on game trailers, and they apparently mentioned the next Xbox was codenamed Loop. I thought it was something else. 
Um, I don't know if this is old news, but it seems to me like a fitting name. Also, if I put my speculation hat on for a second, if you turn the 8 as a Windows 8 on its side, it transforms into an infinity symbol, which again carries with a lot of definitions. So maybe that had something to do with the working title of the Xbox and Apple's Apple Corp, you know, uh, iPad and iPhone and all that. They're headquarters are on one infinity lane so i don't know yeah if one infinite loop them. cupertino california yeah, or infinite loop yeah uh and then he also he asked two questions um i've also heard about the idea of infinity and it is an interesting proposition but then do windows 8 and windows wp8 windows phone 8 uh, also get infinity treatment and uh divergent branding then what would the infinity mean endless entertainment options perhaps well i guess i'll throw my two cents in first um, Windows seems to be unifying all of their products. Well, at least for Windows, the operating system and the phone, they seem to be kind of really streamlining those two and having them uh, kind of have the same user interface and same uh, terminology for a lot of the different small pieces of software within those software packages. And uh, it's actually an interesting idea. I don't know if Xbox 8, how does that sound? I don't know about the Xbox Loop, but how about the Xbox 8, if they're going to launch Windows 8 and the Phone 8 and the Xbox all at the same time. That that could actually be... That's actually not a bad idea. But there was, an, oh, there was another code name for the Xbox and the PlayStation. Do you guys know it off the top of your head? The next generation of each? Yeah. Yeah, they have different mm-hmm. code names. I feel like one's... I, all I know is that the original 360 was codenamed Xenon, and then the uh, Xbox Slim was codenamed Valhalla. Durango. Durango is the next Xbox. That's the codename. Yeah, because I think I mean, on the last podcast we talked a lot about, yeah, we talked a lot about Xbox 8 as sort of like a name in the last podcast, but Durango, that's uh, that's definitely, that's, that's going to be a codename. I don't think that it's going to have much relation to the actual final name no they might say that at e3 next year during the press conference but i mean kind of like the way that they called uh, the connect natal for a year and a half before it came out and then you know they changed it right before it did simon Durang- durango's a city right all microsoft code names are cities oh exactly yeah like natal is a city in brazil so yeah durango's in colorado i'm sure there's more than one durango but it's way far south in colorado i'll just throw this one out as a bone to you john actually uh the codename for Windows Home Server uh, was Vail. Huh. Okay. So they actually had a series of Colorado codenames for a while back then dealing with server products, but that's not what we're here for. So he next says, on an entirely different note, this is going to be a bit lengthy, I'm interested in hearing Simon and Alex's, and I guess now John's, opinions on the whole trend of branching stories in games and unique endings. Personally, I've begun to think that this kind of gimmick, even though it's been around for a long time, may actually be damaging to a game rather than help it. Instead of having the fanbase and critics alike express their rage about a game's disappointing ending, wouldn't it serve both the developers and the audience better if games used a more traditional approach to storytelling? As much as I try to play a multiple-choice type game like Deus Ex, Mass Effect, or The Witcher, to my own personality you're still always being led down a more or less identical path to the end. Do we as gamers really know what we want in a good story? I'm starting to be of the opinion that quantity and choice in a story does not outweigh a well-told, straightforward story. So, uh, very eloquently expressed opinion there. 
and basically, generally, what I mean, what happens in most games of this type is exactly what you said. You start out with a unified beginning, then you diverge wildly. The basically, the only difference is the extent to which you diverge, and then you ultimately end up corralled back in at the end. I don't think there's anything insidious about this in terms of game developers wanting people to suffer or anything like that. I think it's basically simple mathematics and timing in that by the time you get to the end, especially if you've been branching and branching as Mass Effect did for three games, you have uh, literally thousands or tens of thousands of individual unique endings because of 50 different circumstances that happened along the way to get you there. Combine that with the fact that the developers are usually in crunch by the time they're working on the ending. They're really just trying to get it for marketing, get it uh, sent to manufacturing. I think those two problems are basically irreconcilable. And the only way that you can actually get ridiculous choices is basically to make it an MMO. In essence, never have it end. Either that or basically just have a straightforward path. Well, let me jump in really quick. From from my limited experience with MMOs, there is a distinct story. And the 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 only MMO I've played was the Old Republic, and you know, every class had their own storyline, and that did end at a point. I mean like the main story for that class ended at a point. Um, and there was, you know, eight of them in that game, eight major classes, and they all had their own storyline. Um, but I think that the problem isn't with branching storylines, I think it's that just bad endings. Like Mass Effect 3, the thing that we're going to be talking about for forever, it sounds it feels like sometimes. Um, we were expecting at least two good endings. A good and an evil ending. And we got one bad ending, which I think is what really pissed people off. So it's it's to me, it's not that branching storylines... If it's done well, everybody enjoyed 99% of the Mass Effect trilogy. And then that last little bit, it fell apart. And, uh, like, really, really fell apart. Nobody liked it. And uh, other than that, I think branching storylines is a great way to keep um, stories interesting and replayable. I mean, when when you're playing through the same mission over and over, it can get kind of boring. But if if you're an asshole versus a a hero, it it really keeps it interesting. It keeps me from skipping the cutscenes. Yeah, and I mean, John, you mentioned there two good endings would have been fine. I mean, if we look at the, uh, I guess, the sort of spiritual predecessor to Mass Effect being Knights of the Old Republic, I mean, that had basically two endings. You were either good or you were bad. I mean, there was tons of branching decisions throughout the game. I mean, obviously not as many as Mass Effect would later have. But, I mean, I think there you sort of see uh, like a model of what they could have done and I mean, just to the sort of the overall general point of branching storylines, I'm uh, I'm honestly of two minds because part of me feels like, well, I want as many possible endings as I can get because I want the game to be as tailored to me specifically. But the problem with that is there's no way that they can do that for every person that they're designing the game for. And I mean, there's no way they can tailor it to me specifically. So I, I think what the uh, the listener writes there, where you, you honestly just need one ending. I, I agree with you guys. I think that's the only real way to satisfy everybody. Well, I have a couple of things, and I'd like to pose a question to the listeners and see if this is really kind of the end for the experimentation that Mass Effect really pushed forward, which was save file transfer. Obviously, one of the 
biggest things and selling points of Mass Effect was the fact that you could take your character over and compound choices, compound decisions, compound basically your level and things that you had gained in previous games, which makes it completely different from pretty much almost any other series. Um, I think we saw it exist way back in Ultima a little bit, where you could transfer your save file to another game and have some benefit, but never, never something on this scale. Like, will it will it kill the possibility because Bioware is so stung by the reception to it, or will someone pick it up? That's that's really what I'm interested to hear. But uh, the other thing that I want to note is that basically, you everyone knows the choose your own adventure story, right? It's the one where you start on one page and it says, "All right, do you go into the cave or do you follow your friend down the path?" Okay, go to page 58 if you want to follow the friend. And then, oh, your friend actually turned out to be a drug addict, and they both died on the alleyway. And it's like, start over. And interestingly enough, there aren't any of those for adults. Well, which makes me but the key uh, think of. Hold on, let me interrupt you. But the key difference is that when you're reading that and you have that choice, you keep your thumb on the page and you read the first paragraph <laughs> of both options, and then you can choose from there which one you like more. So you get a little taste of what the two different forks are. And then, I mean, you can't really do that in Mass Effect on the console. I mean, you could do that is with it, quick saves, I guess. Yeah, Sean. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's why I'm mean, using that with quick save. Yeah, is for? but it's not as quick it's, save, quick load. I mean, it's significantically slower. It's, it's a bit. It's, it's, a, it's, it's yeah, yeah, time consuming. I yeah. feel like with the back button as a quick save, though, in Mass Effect Three, they were almost sort of pointing you in that direction. It's like try a little of both. See what see what you like a little bit more. But um, yeah, that's. I mean, we could rehash Mass Effect 3 all day and turn it into basically a class at a college somewhere, but uh, we're going to move on. And uh, I'm actually regretting doing it in this order because this means that Alex gets to butcher this guy's name once more. Okay, I, can, I, I think I got it. Soul Fluxion. I got it this time. Anyways, after pronouncing it correctly this time, the listener writes, I always prefer to think of it as a manipulation theory instead of an indoctrination theory. The Godchild tries to convince Shepard that destroying the Reapers is bad, while Synthesis and Control are better choices. For me, the only real choice for my Shepard was to destroy the Reapers and not believe the Godchild. We don't control you, so you can't take control of the Reapers. Yeah, right. Synthesis is the best choice. Kind of reminds me of Harbinger's famous quote, We are your genetic destiny. Destroying the Reapers won't solve anything. Oh, and Edie and the Geth die. Nice try. Uh, and so, basically, my one comment is that um, you responded in, in turn to each of the three existing endings. But uh, then, for those of you who don't know, I guess, spoiler alert, for the new ending DLC, there's a disobey ending. There are four choices now! Four! And the uh, fourth one is, you turn your gun on the little punk and shoot him. And then he's basically like, Argh. And everything gets destroyed. And Liara's message, which she recorded, basically gets passed on for future generations because all of you get wiped out. And eventually you're back in the stupid fucking starry field with the kid and the, the old person. And they basically say that, yeah, it was the Shepherd's legacy and recordings that helped them eventually at some point down the line defeat the Reapers. Uh, so my question is, you know, what's your reaction to that? I said in the last podcast, I felt that was the ultimate ending because you're if it's the indoctrination theory you are directly uh contra you know defying the uh the order and the uh 
indoctrination of your mind. You're telling them, I don't want to play this game. I'm going to shoot you directly. So whatever, whatever there might be. Uh, and, John, you want to take uh, this, this comment that he has at KRN? Um, sure. Uh, KRN said, I agree. Also, oftentimes those games lack a really satisfying ending. I like games that offer only two endings. In games, using a moral system, Bioware, uh, it could be a good, good, good and bad ending, like we've seen in Nice Early Public, while in other games, both endings could have their own merits, like in GTA 4. Like, I thought GTA 4 had a really good split ending. I thought they did a very good job with that. And they, they didn't... Like, there's only a couple choices that you got to make throughout the whole game. Significantly less than you got in uh, in any of the Mass Effects. Uh, but, I, but like, that's what I was expecting. I think everybody was expecting for Mass Effect. Like, extremely different endings in multiple... At, at least two of them. And, uh, yeah, so I, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, your whole point is that this new fourth ending fits into the manipulation theory, Vesson. You'd say it, it only goes to prove it. But my thought, at least, is if he's indoctrinated or being manipulated or what have you, then nothing he or she does, depending on what gender your shepherd is, uh, no, no matter what shepherd does, uh, shepherd has no free will. So you're still being controlled. And so... I mean, it's, there's, the Reapers are still controlling your options. I mean, you may have another option now. But ultimately, you know, you still don't have free choice because you're indoctrinated either way. So that's that's why I I think the, the whole theory kind of falls through. Because I don't think, I mean, I don't think the developers planned it out or anything like that. So I don't think in the end it fits in perfectly. And again, we'll, As you seem to we'll, do. we'll continue to have our, that debate until the end of time. All right, well, but before we move on from that, I just want to put my two cents in on the whole indoctrination theory. I think it's fucking stupid. I, I, I hate all these uh, like these third-person ideas of what people, like, oh, these weird, these crazy theories about what's going on. Um, and this has always stuck with me since the first time I read it. I, uh, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, uh, at the very beginning of the book, he says, like, don't look into this, into this. There's no symbolism. There's no nothing. There's no double meanings. There's nothing. That's how I go into every single piece of media I've ever I've ever consumed, and that's it. I hate all this. It's basically fan fiction. I mean, that's it's just as uninteresting to me as fan fiction. All right, yeah. Basically, on our last podcast, we had that exact same discussion, except maybe he was a little less emphatic than you were in just straight up denouncing the idea. But okay. yeah, I can see that. You know. I guess you're one of those people that never liked English class where you basically just read into everything like crazy. Well, I think it has a... You're right, I didn't like English class. And I think some books, when you read into them and you're told what the symbolism of the green stoplight in The Great Gatsby is, that makes sense. But I've never figured that out on my own. Never. I, I just don't see that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't think... I don't think many movies and have ever got to that level of like serious like very few movies are good enough to pull off serious symbolism like that. And I think almost no games have been able to get really good symbolism in the way that like you know the classics that you read in high school have been able to pull off. I I just go into it and absorb it how I want to and that's that's enough for me. Okay. Well, uh, that's that, and so we'll do our Dixicle segment where 
we basically uh, talk about what kind of games we've been playing since uh, we last recorded the podcast. So, oh god, no, I just realized that that means you're going to say about 56 different games because you've been live streaming like non-stop these past few days oh, uh, of the indie sale. I'll, I'll limit it to like five or six highlights. Uh, yeah, just take the uh, just take the best of. Yeah. Now we're going to do our Dixical segment. Uh, John's promised to limit his uh, selection to four or five of the best games that he's played. I've been keeping it pretty simple. I've actually been playing a lot of Fallout 3 recently. Just had a strange urge to play it again. I don't know. I seem to always play it right before I actually go to Washington, D.C. for whatever reason. Except that I don't see any super mutants around. I just see fat Nebraskan tourists. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I did the uh, a similar thing before I went to D.C. the last time I went. And my only thought was, sorry, this is just a quick aside before I get to uh, that whole segment, is that it's awesome walking through the subways after having played Fallout 3 because they are literally the exact same. But anywho, uh, what I've been playing lately, well, uh, I've been spending a lot more time watching games download than playing them lately thanks to the fucking Steam sale and its ability to destroy my wallet with its amazingly low prices. Um... But I've been uh, playing some Roman Total War lately, some FIFA, and uh, uh, some Knights of the Old Republic, which I picked up on Steam for $2.49, which is awesome. So I've been playing that again, and that game is awesome. And John? Uh, is that on sale right now, Knights of the Old Republic? Uh, I'm not sure. It might have been a, a daily dealer or a flash dealer or something. It was like 75% off, and I got it for like two forty nine. That's been on my like two playlists. My game. Oh no, it's right there right uh, now. Yeah, Shit. no, you should definitely <sighs> get that. At least like purchase it. Maybe not download it now. How does it hold up? How does it hold up for uh, you know? Because it's kind of old. It's almost ten years old at this point. Well, I mean, more than graphics. I can look past the graphics. How, how does it hold up in terms of like flow and? Uh, it's not like Fallout or Mass Effect. It's not an RPS. It's still just a click, 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 click. Cue a bunch of actions on this guy. And then basically, they'll take it in turn. You'll see the numbers fly up because it's literally like calculating, rolling d20s and stuff digitally. But uh, install a bunch of mods. Install di- different mods that get you different maps and um, different uh, game types and character models. Uh, I think that'll help. Yeah, and Simon, like Simon, I, like I just started playing. Simon, I uh, went through, and I think he just had an old copy of the game. Uh, so he played a couple months ago, but I've just been playing lately, and I'm, you know, I'll admit I'm not that far into the game yet because I just got it. But having played it originally on the Xbox, it's uh, it's a little bit different playing it on the PC. But in terms of how it's playing, I think the the gameplay is fine, and uh, I'll post up a link uh, with the podcast when we put it out. Of uh, I found a good guy who uh, has some mods for uh, texture updates, and it's actually updated this year, so it's relatively recent, and everything I've seen. Uh, that he's done has been excellent and it's really easy to install because literally you just unzip a RAR file and copy these files into one file in the uh, like the Steam app thing for the game and you just paste it there and it's good to go and it's awesome. So And besides, who doesn't want to hear HK47? His squishy bulbousness was too much for my oral receptors master, so I terminated him. Dude was a fucking boss. He's probably one of my favorite characters in uh in games but i think next whenever next podcast is i'm gonna have a lot more games to talk about because i think right now i have or well not right now but uh 
in the pipes, I have uh, Borderlands, which I picked up for super cheap, and uh, uh, Fallout New Vegas Ultimate Edition, neither of which I've played, but have been on my list for a long, t- long time. So uh, I'm going to have a ton of fun with both those games. All right. Oh, man. Uh, so since I've been back, I've been playing a fuckload of indie games. Um, first one I played was uh, Spelunky on the Xbox 360. Uh, I think it's like 10, 15 bucks, something like that. It's a side-scrolling platformer, and it's insanely difficult. Um, like, really, really, really fucking difficult. Like, I've made, I've made almost no progress. I've, I've unlocked one checkpoint in the game. If anybody's played, they, they know that that's pretty fucking difficult to do. And I'm maybe like a third of the way through the game at this point. I've probably put in at least 10 hours. Um, but it is really fucking hard. Uh... I don't know if I just get too drunk to play it sometimes. <laughs> it really fucks with my reaction times. But you die so fucking quick in that game. It is ridiculous. Um, it, it reminds me a lot of The Binding of Isaac, which I also picked up on Steam on one of their sales the other day. Because it's an indie game. It's got a very retro feel to it. And uh, if you played The Binding of Isaac, you know, it's uh, Spelunky and Isaac are very similar in that like when you die, you go back to the beginning and it has randomized dungeons. So... Uh, you keep starting over from the beginning over and over again, but you, when you go off exploring, it's completely different every single time, even though it's the same looking environment. And then you start to kind of learn the patterns of what these different areas look like. And it, uh, and they're both really fucking difficult games, but I'm enjoying the hell out of them. Very, you know, only for the masochists. Yeah. I mean the, uh, like the, the randomized start area that sounds Kind of interesting and almost I don't I don't know if I want to say innovative innovative I don't know how to pronounce it anyways uh, unique uh, because I, I remember games like uh, I think Dark Souls or whatever they're you know also another game for the masochist where every time you start over it's the same thing every time it's hard as hell but it's I mean you ultimately just sort of get like a muscle memory of okay up X X Y or whatever you get through and you can just sort of remember the pattern because it's the same every time but that seems, sounds like a, a pretty interesting way to get around that and make it just that much more difficult yeah that's an interesting point because uh, like dark souls you're right it's the same thing every single time like every enemy is in for the most part the exact same spot and the bosses are the same and all that but uh yeah both those games are crazy fucking hard um what else did i play cave story plus really enjoyed that that was part of the indie the first day of the sale i think um Apparently it's free online through probably Newgrounds or something like that. There have been a bunch of really shitty games on the indie bundles. I'll, I'll finish going through these really quick. I bought Metro 2033. I bought Met, uh, or I was gifted Quantum Conundrum, and uh, and then I bought The Walking Dead as well. And I haven't had a chance to play any of those. Uh, and I was also gifted Hard Reset, which I don't know, if, which I I never heard of before, but it's supposed to be pretty good. Um, but yeah, there, there haven't been a ton of amazing indie games. Not many that I'm going to go back to that I, after that first half hour or whatever that I played during the, the daily live stream. Any finishing comments? Because we'll actually now uh, move on to our actual topics for this week. Uh, the first of which is basically Games, the movie, uh, part two. Because what we see is now, uh, this what actually triggered me, uh, most of these topics... If you want to know, I find like a single article somewhere and it just gets me thinking on a tangent. Well, what if, what if, what if? 
thing I s- started this was uh, I saw the trailer for Halo Forward Unto Dawn, which is a new five-part uh, short, a series of five shorts, which will lead up to the Halo 4 release. Do we know how long a short is going to be? Like, is this going to be like a total of one hour kind of thing? Yeah, I wasn't able to find anything about that. I'm sure it's out there now. Okay. But it got me thinking about the uh, rumors and the enthusiasm and subsequent disappointment about the original Halo movies, the one that was basically coming out or thought to come out sometime around Halo 3, if you all remember that. But the thing was, it couldn't get off the ground because the studios just didn't think it could be profitable. And so there's still doubt over this movie because I was able to find out that it was given $10 million budget, which, uh, as Paul Thorat put it, quote, is less than Microsoft spent on soft drinks for the developers of Halo 4. Uh, So they're still working on a shoestring budget, still working with very little, and they're expected to make a big success out of it. And Yeah, I mean, Simon, that's the thing that sort of frustrates me. I mean, as a fan, like, I I, want to see something like this just because I think it would be so cool. And I mean, going back to... uh, uh, all of those live-action trailers for Halo, especially the ones like with the ODSTs driving around in uh, the Warhogs and things, where they actually made all those props and did all those things live-action. I thought that looked awesome, and I mean, I'm not sure how much that brought in outside people for their game, but I think like as a as a movie, if you could do that kind of thing, I think that'd be really neat. But it just frustrates me as a fan that they're almost being set up for failure from the very beginning. Because, as you say, they're given next to nothing, expected to deliver, you know, some major hit, and then crucified if they don't succeed. Yeah, there's some other examples. Bioshock uh, with Fallen by the Wayside because the studios demanded that it have a PG-13 rating, which I think all of us can just say, what the fuck, right? A Bioshock movie for anything less than R? Are you serious? Simon, you can't say that if... You can't say that if you're in the Bioshock movie. Exactly. You can say it once. You can drop one F-bomb in a PG-13. <laughs> that. Secondly, Gears of War, same thing. And also, they like cut the budget significantly. That one's in doubt. Mass Effect, there's this one anime series, which is Paragon Lost. Already, the trailer and what we've seen, uh, movie critics have already started to um, basically pan it. And then there's actually the Mass Effect feature film, which Legendary Pictures, who, like, is of Inception fame, uh, basically came out and said, yeah, you know Joker, you know Seth Green, you know all those people that you actually liked from the game? Uh, Yeah, none of that is actually going to be in this movie. So, I mean, what are we to take from this that basically Hollywood has almost this prejudice against video game movies? They expect uh, the video game movie to deliver the entire fan base yet give it nothing, as Alex, I think you put it quite astutely. Well, uh, ha- ha- hold on just a second. Ha- have you guys seen District 9? Yes, by Neil Blomkamp, the guy who was originally slated to do the uh, Halo movie. Isn't he working on something new now? Well, he directed those Halo shorts, those ones that were fucking awesome. Like, people reporting were reporting that he was going to be the one directing the Halo movie for a while because of those shorts. He was the one that was going to be directing it, and then... Never happened, but, I mean, I think he could have done an excellent job, because I think District 9 was a fucking badass movie. I'm still waiting for a sequel to it. Basically, what what's going to happen? Are we... we? I think we've proven at this point that these short cinematics and kind of um, increasingly complex 
uh, little films like Ghost Recon, Future Soldier, Alpha are viable. They do get people energized. And so when, when does the big break happen? When, when do the movie studios finally start uh, kind of meeting us halfway and say, okay, we'll actually give you a decent shot. We won't basically uh, do something that will kill all chance of it you know, halfway through. And I think a lot of a lot of your answer was revealed in the uh, the Freddie Wong panel that uh, we we live logged at RTX, where they talked about how even a, a movie as great as Inception was predicted to fail, uh, was denied by multiple studios, and it's just like it's basically the I mean I don't want to say fat cats, but uh, you know the 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 higher ups at uh, at all these major studios are just sitting on what they've got and they. They don't want to risk losing their job over some young dude's project and visionary idea or whatever. And so they're just going to make sequels. I mean, I remember there was a, a graphic they showed where in the uh, the past 10 years, the number of uh, sequels to like to you know previously successful movies has gone through the roof when compared with, uh, with new, I mean, I guess you call it IPs for movies as well. And it just sort of, it's frustrating because if, you know, movies with, genuinely good actors with genuinely good directors good writers you know just everything well done but they just aren't necessarily heard of or that aren't established in some way already if they can't get into something i think it's going to be really challenging to see any sort of big break as you say for any uh i guess real legitimate video game movie well i think the problem is money and the amount of money that goes into making movies and the fact that all these companies, you know, you have the Hollywood companies and you got the gaming companies. And the gaming companies, when they go to Hollywood, they don't want to give up the IP. They want to control everything. And the Hollywood people want to control everything. Um, so, and neither of them are willing to budge. And it's just a, a clusterfuck. Like, no one, no one's willing to give up any rights to... The, the intellectual property. So Halo's never going to see the big screen. Gears of War, I doubt we'll ever see the big screen. If it is, if it does, it's going to be a pile of shit. Just because they're not... I mean, like, the... Because the, the movie company doesn't want to invest a ton of money into something that another company is going to be making a lot of money off of. Because, like, one, one of the big problems with the Halo movie was that, like, um, Microsoft didn't want to give up the merchandising rights for Halo toys and action figures and all that kind of stuff. So the movie studios didn't want to dump a whole lot of money into a movie that was going to make, uh, you know, that they weren't going to make a ton of money on. And then Microsoft didn't want to work with someone that wasn't going to put a whole lot of money into this project. So it's like, that's looking at it from the perspective of turning a video game into a movie. When you turn a movie into a video game, you get a whole bunch of shit that has to come out on the day that the game comes out, or the the game that comes out the day the movie comes out, not vice versa. I mean, it's a very important distinction. Like, we all know that both sides of that coin are garbage. And there have been very, like, I'm trying to think of any exceptions at all to this rule, but I, I can't think of any examples that have, like, that, that are real standouts. I mean, why aren't we talking about a Call of Duty movie? I mean, it's... That's the biggest selling thing out there. I mean, same thing with World of Warcraft. Like, the Call of Duty and World of Warcraft are the biggest franchises in gaming right now. That are Angry Birds. 
and angry like <laughs> that's where the that's where the stuff is going now really like angry birds rio and uh temple run brave and stuff like that you know that that's where the studios are making their money off of movies into games now so i i don't think it's ever really going to happen well the reason we called it part two was here i'll let you get to it in a second alex but i want to point out that we called it games the movie part two was because we earlier we saw a, a couple like a wave of video game movies like tomb raider and prince of persia come out but no one would call those good movies and they were well they were terrible <laughs> i mean to be to be honest and so basically uh another question to consider is were they so terrible that hollywood just became completely averse to the idea and then this was the actual reason that they're giving so little or is it uh as john kind of laid out uh the fact that no one wants to give in this tug of war it could be it could be both yeah i, I mean i definitely i think there is uh some i guess you could call it a bit of a hangover from those games i think that was more of a more than just a wave it sort of seemed every once in a while you'd see a, a terrible resident evil movie or something like that and i mean I can't remember ever going to see any of those movies. They were maybe in theaters for like a, like two weeks, just because. I mean, they were they were terrible. Simple as that. But John, you I mean, you were talking, and you uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting uh, point. I think it's probably uh, I guess you could say the more correct one when you're talking about each studio not wanting to give up uh, their various rights or uh, money or what have you. But I think it raises the interesting idea of now, Simon, you're talking about the Halo Ford Unto Dawn is going to be a series of shorts, and it, it sounds like, you know, probably be a, a digital release probably on, like, their site or something like that as opposed to in theaters. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm sure just a YouTube. I mean, where else would it be other than just YouTube? It raises the point of, you know, these studios have massive amounts of money. I mean, I'm you know, EA, Activision... Microsoft, they, none of these companies are hurting for money uh, in any, I guess, in any real way. Uh, uh, they're publicly traded companies. They grow by 15% year over year or else the CEO gets fired. And that's that's as simple as it gets. But, I mean, that's that's they, 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 they definitely, they have budgets that they can work with. Like, they're not, you know, they're not. I mean, I guess maybe they may, may be penny-pinching a little bit. Anyway, stop destroying, stop, stop destroying my point. They're, they're yes. not starting... They're not starting Kickstarters to get the Halo series of shorts online, even though that would probably get a better product than the awful trailer that I watched the other day. Like, I, I have zero interest in it. It looked fucking terrible. Like, I, I have zero interest in seeing... I mean, I'll watch them. No, no, I won't watch them. Do you guys remember the Mortal Kombat trailer that came out and then it ended up getting turned into, like, a series of shorts? And the shorts were fucking stupid. I watched the first three of them. And that was like too longer than I really should have, just because the initial trailer, just to build publicity for it, was so fucking good. And then Machinima got a hold of it, and what happened? It went to crap. Like I, I don't know anything about that industry, but it, nothing ever good comes out of like these two major, major, major industries trying to work together. They they just haven't figured it out yet. And when it does happen, I don't think it's going to be any of the major. Um, major franchises that we know of or that that we think of as getting turned into a movie i think it's going to have to be something like i don't know skyrim skyrim or uh or fallout or something like that like where, where they have where they can take a lot of liberty and take the story in their own direction and 
you know, kind of a smaller franchise. More something more where there's an established universe, but not necessarily a, a set story where you can work within. I and I think that yeah, right. that's probably true. But I mean, getting getting back to my point, um, whether or not they're hurting for money, do you think the? Uh, I mean, these Halo. Uh, forward onto Dawn things, it looks like we might see in the future more of these sort of in-house projects versus collaborations between studios, and I'm wondering if they're more in-house in this way. I mean, could they be more successful? Yeah, uh, that was the other thing I was going to point out was that basically what we're seeing is a slow creep-up in length of these in-house made movies. We had kind of the... We started with uh, Halo Landfall, which was, uh, I guess, maybe like 20 minutes... And then we had Assassin's Creed Lineage, which I think was a full half-hour, three-part series, just like Landfall was a three-part series. Then we have Ghost Recon Future Soldier Alpha, which was a good 20 minutes, but uh, in a single piece. Now we have Halo Forward Unto Dawn, which, depending on how long they make five parts, could go a full hour or so. Are we slowly approaching, kind of in a, in a backwards route, the 90-minute feature film in kind of a different and more organic distribution method which is basically youtube huh well i think hmm, that's an interesting way of looking at it and i think part of the answer lies in the success of tv dramas these days like breaking bad uh mad men walking dead you know all the amc and hbo shows and stuff like that like the success of those half an hour to an hour dramas is uh and of the DVD sales of those specifically, because I guarantee you're going to be able to buy, uh, you know, this H- HBO uh, Halo miniseries that's coming to the web on Blu-ray uh, with like behind-the-scenes director's cuts and commentary and special features and all that kind of shit, and that's where they're going to make a lot of their money. Um, and I think that people, I think that the movies are slowly dying off, and that the reason that the big movie studios are so ambivalent to, you know, back to the money. I mean, it's, it's always about the money. The, the reason the big studios are hesitant to get into the game stuff when they're fighting with a big company for all the control and all the money. Oh, I lost my train of thought. Anyway, the success of TV is, is pointing a lot toward, you know, it's, it's getting people into shorter chunks of really high quality content. I think that's my my main point. All right, so our Rare Daniel segment. I actually looked on GameMinder yesterday, and I saw absolutely nothing of interest coming out in the next week. I mean, the summer release drought is really continuing to grip us just as much as the one outside. GameMinder? What is this website? I I don't know this site. GameMinder.com. We actually saw these guys at RTX. They have a site which uh, lists all release dates of games by platform, by date. Oh, Jesus Christ. This would have been so helpful. I spent like two hours going through release dates today on Amazon and Gamefly for finding out what's coming out for this holiday. Holy shit. That's exactly the uh, the purpose of that. And Simon got a decently long conversation with the guy uh, there. And I mean, the whole point of their app is well, you want to know when it's coming out? We're going to let you know. You can also set reminders and all kinds of cool yeah, stuff they like can, that. Yeah, I think, I think one of the functions of that app is actually even set it to pre-order it for you on Amazon You know when, when it, when it uh, comes up, when the option comes up. It's a, yeah, it's available. Things like that. So uh, John looks like he's just found kind of Nirvana right there. Yeah, this is fucking great. Holy shit. 
Yeah, but uh, I mean, as Simon said, <laughs> as Simon said, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, <laughs> sorry that yeah that joke has been going on since middle school. Oh, this is really fucking handy. Holy shit! Yeah, to help make up for uh, some of that, I mean, obviously I have, and I know John has uh, been using the Steam sale and checking that every day. So that definitely helps uh, alleviate a bit of the. Uh, summertime game release blues but as far as what's coming out this week we're not gonna uh talk more about that because we're going to talk a little bit about our decision to include this segment obviously uh our listeners for a long time will know that we made a commitment not to jump on like kind of talking about release dates and the like but we also made a commitment to go with listeners ideas and so in the end i'm going to use an analogy here we were unable to save the segment on the grounds of release dates but instead, our, our job is to preserve a segment, if at all possible, using any uh, means of justification. So we decided to uphold it uh, based on listener feedback taking precedence. And so John uh, has basically just discovered, <laughs> John has discovered this amazing new thing. But um, we're going to talk, because this is going to consume a whole lot of our time, uh, the future of DLC and you. We're going to talk about every aspect of DLC. Uh, I always say that there's one spark for an entire segment, and this one was the recent announcement that Borderlands has the highest attach rate of any DLC, according to Microsoft. And it had very uh, four very solid pieces of DLC released through its life, like the army of General Knox and things like that. Uh, but that just leads into questions for games as a whole. And the questions we're asking are... How much is too much DLC? What kind should it be? What size should it be? When should it be released? How much should it cost? And more importantly, for uh, people who are really into gaming, constantly moving, multiple profiles, etc., how are they going to resolve this nightmarish patchwork of content licenses across multiple consoles and different profiles on the same device? Wow. Wow, those are some huge questions. <laughs> you, you hit a lot with like two sentences there. Okay. That's why um, we're here to discuss it. People want to hear these opinions and people want to discuss them. Okay. Yeah, so we're, we're all just setting up a, a platform, for dis- platform for discussion. Okay, well, uh, keep it simple. Keep it simple to start. Um, why don't we all start by naming our favorite game? No, our game that we think has handled DLC the best of all the games that have come out for any platform, Xbox 360, consoles, PC, anything like that. I'll, uh, I'll start with uh, Fallout 3. I think Fallout 3. I can't remember how much each DLC pack cost, but they were... 800 Microsoft points. So they 10, 10 bucks. 10 bucks. That's incredibly cheap compared to what you get uh, from most DLC packs these days when you look at like Call of Duty and... I'm going to agree with you on Fallout 3, and I say that Mass Effect 2 is a very close second because it had, like, the uh, Liara Shadowbroker and Arrival mm. and a bunch of things like that. I have to discount it, though, on the stupid uh, way that Cerberus Network worked and the whole crap load of kind of guns, DLC, costumes, DLC that just didn't matter at all. But Fallout 3 is very good. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, yeah, I'd agree with you guys on... Fallout 3 generally, I mean, except there, obviously there were a, a couple of issues, um, some bugs with Broken Steel and other things. Uh, I mean, overall, I thought it was excellent, but I think 
topping it out uh, and beating it would probably be Rockstar's Grand Theft Auto 4 mm. purely because of the amount mm. of things you got from the DLC. I mean, just the – I mean, as uh, Todd Howard said, when they are building up their Skyrim DLC, they wanted to make rockstar size DLC where it's just this massive amount of content. And honestly for me, that's what I want out of my DLC. I want more story – uh, more gameplay, just you know, more to keep me occupied. I could, I can pass on the di- extra gun or the different color texture for the map. Right. Well, we we okay. You we we all say the people listening to this all say that we don't buy those extra skins and those extra colors and the palette swaps and all that kind of stuff. But they make an enormous amount of money off that stuff because it sells. Even though we don't like it, we don't find it necessary. It does incredibly well. Yeah, it's actually down there. So uh, I think we should progress naturally through these. So, like, our first question is, uh, you know, how much is too much DLC? Obviously, here we go. Uh, First Defender, Modern Warfare 3. Activision came out and said there will be 20 map packs. 20. Count them. Each. And they're all going to cost you a lot, starting with the... Remember the stimulus package back in Modern Warfare 2? They were like, ah, ha, ha, really funny stimulus package for Activision Bobby Kotick's bonus pay. 1,200 Microsoft points for like three, five, four, five maps. And now they each do that. And now, and of course, uh, Activision's plan, evil genius plan, is you pay for $50 a year for Call of Duty Elite... Then you buy the game for $60 new. You wait in line at midnight. Then you pay 60 bucks a year for Xbox Live. And so, I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, the, the, yeah, I mean the frustrating thing for me was I remember when the, uh, the stimulus package came out for Modern Warfare 2. And, I mean, at the time, I had been playing uh, Call of Duty with my friends, you know, almost every night. We were just we were having a blast. But I remember being online when my friends all went to the marketplace, or at least a decent number of them. All went online. I mean, Simon was like Robert and Brett and some of those guys. They all went on and downloaded uh, the stimulus package at the same time. I remember we were all like in game and they were chatting about how it was almost downloaded. And then the next day or the day after, I couldn't play with them because they were all in lobbies going through all the stimulus maps and I couldn't play it. And it was the most frustrating thing. Now, here's the worst part if there are 20 map packs and you just talked about one and already there's fragmentation, you can't join your friends. What if you have, like, 20 map packs, each person buys kind of one that they finally saved up enough Microsoft points to get, and they grab that one, and that's, like, 18, their friends get 5, and 12, and 3, and suddenly you have 20 different people all unable to play with each other, and that level of fragmentation is ludicrous, like, beyond Android kind of fragmentation. Uh, just to kind of shit on your point a little bit, at what point do you think people just buy everything? I mean, okay, assume assume we're at the point where all twenty Modern Warfare three map packs come out. If you if you made a bar graph of the percentage of people that bought one through twenty, I would assume that maybe up to five to ten, there's a decent amount. It's pretty level. But between 10 and 19, there's almost nobody. And then at 20, it spikes. That, like, most people buy everything. And that's their that's their goal. Like like you were talking about, like, like you just said, you couldn't play with your friends. So how tempted were you to spend 15, 20 bucks, whatever it is, to, uh, to buy that? Wasn't, wasn't going to pay for it. <laughs> I mean, because I, I, mean, I figured 
I mean, I had had a lot of fun playing with my friends. It was a, you know, it was a great time. But at the end of the day, if I couldn't play with them, I could just go into matchmaking and just join a, a lobby with people who didn't have it and just play the maps that I'd already paid for because I didn't feel like going out and paying fifteen dollars for something I was gonna, you know, play for a little bit. And I mean. I mean, I'm probably a little bit more stingy when it comes to DLC than most people, but at the same time, I mean, I couldn't be bothered, and so I'm sure there were plenty of other people who were like me, and therefore were just sort of shit out of luck. And then, we have an example of a game uh, without enough DLC. We felt like, John, you can obviously contribute. I felt like the original Mercenaries uh, could have had a lot more. Obviously, it was an original Xbox game. Um, but original Xbox games, some of them had some DLC. Obviously, the implementation wasn't great there. But I felt like more contracts, more side missions, kind of various factions maybe start fighting each other, you're as the weapon, uh, extending gameplay. That was great. And, of course, I could always use an, uh, another excuse to place 20C4 under something and just blow it up and watch it uh, shoot into the troposphere. Yeah, I mean that was awesome. So, I, mean, I mean, I think what what you mentioned there, the uh, be, the fact that it's on the original Xbox, I think the infrastructure just wasn't really in place for it to be as effective. But I mean, even if we want to move into Xbox 360, Mercenaries Two was still that was a pretty good game as well, and that only had I mean I think they had what like one DLC that wasn't even all that good, Simon. Yeah, that's right. It was the uh, blow it up again pack, which uh, that's just a trivia question. No one actually knows that. No one cares. I think it was just like some racing. Uh, it doesn't even warrant discussion. It was nothing. So our next question is, because we've got to kind of keep it going here, what kind of DLC? Obviously, we've discussed uh, a bit before, and I think we can talk about it a lot more in depth now. Guns, cosmetic changes, map pack, or more narrative content? Well, it depends a lot on the game, obviously. Some are very limited by what the DLC is. There's 20 map packs for Call of Duty coming out, but how many of those are single-player? None, right? Um, well, cosmetic... I think cosmetic works much better on free-to-play. Uh, if, if you look at like Street Fighter and all the different palette swaps that they have for all the different fighters in their games, that just annoys people. Um, but when it comes to League of Legends, I think it's a really effective way to uh, let people show that they are good with a character or something like that. Um, to differentiate. Yeah, exactly, to differ- differentiate, yeah. Um, I mean, the reason uh, I brought this up was because of I thought immediately of Mass Effect 2, and the first couple of DLC packs they released were just random various guns and uh, alternate costumes for everyone. And I thought, you know, when will I ever use this? When will I ever cycle and make Morden wear all black for a mission? You know, that's I'll hardly ever see that. And I think that, as you said before, it is for those people who are uh, kind of OCD, want to buy all the everything that this game has to offer, but also those people who spend like hundreds of Microsoft points totally decking out their avatar every time kind of a new item comes into the store. I don't, I don't think it's really people spending hundreds of dollars buying every single skin. I think it's you and me and everybody else buying one thing and saying, eh, I like this, you know, this goofy little hat or whatever dumb thing it is. Um, Or saying like, oh, you know, not so much on anything for the console, but I've definitely been in situations where I felt good about supporting the developer of a game 
for a free-to-play game. Like uh, here, like Hero Academy or Tribes or League of Legends, but I've never felt that at all. Anytime I've ever bought any DLC for any console, sixty dollar release, when I already gave them significant amounts of money, and that's a very it's a very different feeling when you're putting extra money into a game um, when it's free to play versus full retail. I mean, I mean, it comes down to the whole thing. It's uh, I mean, when it's free to play, you feel like. Oh well, I've enjoyed this. I'll go ahead and donate it, and you're you're paying at a uh, at whatever level you want to pay it. It's sort of like you know the whole uh, PBS, you know, calling and donating. You know, you pay whatever you feel comfortable paying, and you know you're happy with that, and you're happy to give that because you feel satisfied with something. Versus if you're having to pay up front for you know a sixty dollar, you know, standard Xbox PlayStation release, you feel like they owe you something straight off the bat, and you're never going to get rid of that feeling. Yeah, and uh, that's why I felt like those kind of inane things, they should probably have been in the initial, like, Cerberus Network DLC thing, which caused enough, like, people headaches. I know you guys especially, because you're trying to record different uh, pla- profiles to make your walkthrough on Insane, right? You had to buy it again for your little dummy profile. Yeah, that was a pain in the ass. That, that I mean, that, that's just a dumb dumb limitation of the xbox console on a very obscure edge case scenario because you know i there's me with multiple profiles on one console like you know that that was mass effect 2 and then when i went to mass effect 3 and i played that on the pc i was able to create a save file and edit every single thing that i wanted from mass effect 1 and 2 so i could just replay mass effect 1 and 2 in about five minutes by choosing what my decisions were previously so i mean that that's just that comes down to PC versus console. I mean, PC is always going to be cheaper if you put up that upfront PC cost versus a, you know, relatively cheap Xbox 360. In terms of what kind of DLC for games like Call of Duty, like you said, uh, multiplayer is just going to be the way to go. It's going to be more map packs. But now we see for games like Assassin's Creed and Mass Effect, the lines are kind of blurring. Assassin's Creed has really good single player, which you'd love to hear another story sequence of, but then you'd also like these maps because, you know, you have so much fun kind of sneaking up on people, assassinating them using 50 different methods. Mass Effect, the same thing. You you know, you want to do co-op on another, another uh, arena, but, well, okay. You'd obviously want to see more story, maybe not ending story, but more story leading up to that or what have you, right? These... Well, and I think that's that that's that's in the works, Simon, because you know the the whole uh, leaked thing about Leviathan or whatever. So there probably is DLC for that coming up. But I mean, there's also DLC, DLC coming up. I think it was announced uh, yesterday or something like that. I can't quite remember about uh, a new uh, map pack for, or well, not map pack, but a new map for uh, Mass Effect Three where you can actually fight on Earth in multiplayer. That's free, though, isn't it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's going to be free. But I mean, at the same time, if they were like, if they were charging for that sort of thing, it's sort of the question: which would you? Which would you? I mean, even if if both were free, which would you rather have? Would you rather have them put their development time into making more story content uh, that you can add in, or more multiplayer maps that they can add in? Well, I'm trying to think: what multiplayer DLC have I ever purchased and thought was? as good as the stuff that came bundled on the disc. Like, unless you're super competitive, unless you're playing game battles or... I mean, like, the the built-in competitive scene that's that's 
the matchmaking, if you can even call it matchmaking, that, that comes with Call of Duty and Halo, it's never that good. Um, it The DLC seems to be just a, like a new... I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but it, it, it never seems to scratch that itch that I'm hoping to get from like a balance that, that a balance patch would uh, deliver. It's it's always just new maps. It's never it's never like new content. Fine tuning. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not fine tuning, right? In the way that a StarCraft patch would fine tune some minor details that the competitive people would be in. It's it's just new toys to play with very small things in in the grand picture of it and it never seems to be as well refined as the stuff that comes out on uh on the printed disc it's like giving you yeah, it's like giving you another hot wheel car you're like well the first one we gave you the front wheel was off but here's another one with the back wheel off it's still fun you can you can play with them they're not perfect but it's you know it's another right. one so there so you go for the people that are super hardcore competitive you've got two broken cars instead of one you know well tuned car to learn okay again. well there we go that's our that's our title for this podcast john and two broken cars <laughs> Uh, okay, so that's actually a good segue into when games or DLC should be released. And we're going to go back to Mass Effect 3 again because uh, I've, I've talked about this a lot. I'm sure you guys have had these discussions. Javik, the Javik DLC from Ashes. How could you not have that and understand the game? I mean, Alex, we went to RTX and sitting next to us in the 343 panel, we actually encountered one of these endangered rare species of people who had actually played Mass Effect without without Javik. Me. Me. Right here. I, I didn't play through it with Javik. <laughs> I didn't I didn't know what it was. I I just saw that there was ten dollars to spend after I downloaded the game, so I assumed it was some bullshit that I didn't want because I pre ordered the game to get early access to the beta and played the shit out of the beta and I thought I knew everything about the game. I didn't really so why would they not include a major portion of the game when when I spent when I gave them all my money well ahead of time? So I don't know. Yeah, what give? Like what gives? Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I do feel kind of screwed by them in that regard. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, if you pre-ordered, that probably should have been a a, a pre-order bonus. I but got Battlefield Three for free as a pre-order bonus because I ordered it at the right time. There was like a two-day window when they gave when they gave you Battlefield Three for free when you pre-order Mass Effect. So I got a sixty-dollar game that. two months after it came out for free, and not this short little DLC that dramatic apparently dramatically affects how the game plays. And it's it's weird. I feel like they didn't really market it enough because I went to a, a GameStop to pick it up. I can't remember if I got it like day of release or day or something like that. But, uh, when I was buying it, the, uh, the clerk or whatever, whoever was running the register was saying, Hey, do you want to tack on this thing? And I was like, whatever, what the hell? Sure. Uh, so I got it. And then I was sort of pleasantly surprised to find out what it actually was. Uh, I mean, the dude just totally upsold me, and whatever. Uh, but I was sort of pleasantly surprised. But I, yeah, like I felt like they didn't really get it out enough, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if that's because they were afraid of the backlash that ultimately they did get, that people would think, hey, shouldn't this have been in the game? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I got lucky enough 
that I was able to take advantage of the fact that these games have these AAA titles have zero uh, ability to hold their value. I was able to absorb the cost by buying it used, so I still paid a flat sixty dollars and get the DLC. Um, I managed to do that, and I, I, yeah, you did that like a week after it came out. Literally, like, what the I hell? Mean, that was <laughs> it was pretty unbelievable to me, in fact, and. I just compared it to Mass Effect 2's day one character, which was Zaid, that guy that you kind of yeah, got. He I sat down that. in the basement. You he, he didn't actually have any dialogue with you. You just prompted him, and subtitles appeared on the screen of what he said, as opposed to Javik, who had a serious conversation. You're always talking with him about you know the next cycle, the Reapers, how it was in his cycle, how he saw you evolve, how his species kind of made this entire cycle what it was and all of this really deep and really important insight onto the protheans and kind of the entire background your motivation for fighting okay so let me ask you a quick question compare that dlc the javik dlc to the new ending dlc that just came out which gave you more insight and more more enjoyment that's no no question. I mean, listen. Miles, yeah. If I can explain what the ending DLC is, it is essentially another like a few seconds of footage here and there. And let me let me tell you the biggest cop out of all here. Uh, the the what it was is in the last uh, bit. Hackett basically uh, does a Deus Ex Machina, where across brief flashes of concept art, he basically ties up plot point after plot point. Like, just in that, like, quick successive order. It's like no elaborate storytelling or great cinematics. It is concept art that said, like, okay, now the Krogan are good. Okay, you actually did make it through the Mass Effect relay. Okay, that's why Joker is being chased by that. Okay, this is what happened to the fleet. They weren't just stranded on Earth, etc., etc. And so compare that to Javik DLC, which was really well thought out. He had lines that integrated into the in, across the entire game. Uh, from beginning to end, uh, I, that's not a question. Yeah, I mean, like I, I, I got Javik probably, I don't know, like right at the beginning of the game, like right after I uh, sort of, you know, you have like your opening sequence where you can't really travel to various points, but as soon as sort of the game opened up and got more, I guess you call it, open galaxy, went, on, went ahead and just went in straight ahead and did the DLC and got the character and basically used him uh, as one of my primary companions for the rest of the game. And for every mission, every side quest, everything, he had uh, his own little thoughts and things to chip in here and there in the exact same way as every other party member like that was on disc, every other party member had in the exact same way. I mean, he even had, I don't know if you want to call it a, a, like a loyalty mission a la Mass Effect 2, but basically, it's like, hey, I want to go to this place. It'd be cool if we could go there sometime. And then if you go there, there's like a whole you know, dialogue sequence and cutscene and things like that. And it's like, why, why wasn't that included, A? But B, in terms of what it does for the overall story, I, yeah, I mean, I agree with Simon. It's miles apart from what the ending did. And the annoying thing about the ending for me is I played through the whole fucking thing on hardcore, starting at the autosave it makes for you once you beat the game, went through the whole thing, forgetting that you could put it on narrative to make it go quicker. So I played through the whole goddamn thing again um, on hardcore, got to the end, and the thing fucked up and didn't work for me. So I had to do it another time on narrative before I actually saw any of the shit. Yeah, so essentially, 
let's talk about the release schedule kind of at large, maybe expanding from this day one DLC. Uh, Mass Effect obviously ha- uh, had three different, Mass Effect 2 that is, had three really big uh, DLC packs, and Fallout 3, as we discussed, had five. And both of them had their last DLC packs, that's Arrival and Mothership Zeta, respectively, arrive almost exactly a year to the day of when their successors, that's uh, Mass Effect 3 and Fallout New Vegas, came out. And basically, Arrival was specifically posited as the tie-in, the lead-in to Mass Effect 3. Like, the Reapers are imminent, they're they're like, there's a clock ticking of when they're coming, and you're just trying to delay the inevitable. And then Fallout, uh, kind of a little less so, it was just more to tie you over a little more, but does that work? Right, I mean, I I kind of I kind of liked it because essentially it's game comes out, you get, you know, however many hours, you know, hours upon hours, and these games, especially games like Fallout and uh, more recently Skyrim, uh, Grand Theft Auto, all these big massive games with lots of things to do in them. You know, obviously you're putting in a ton of hours on the front end, but then you know, for the next year basically every few months these companies are putting out more content and it really it prolongs the the life of the game and I, personally I like that because I I honestly I feel like I'm getting my money's worth and even if I have to pay for the DLC I just extending the life of the original purchase I think makes that makes that worth it. I actually think that um waiting just a little bit also helps like again obviously Mass Effect I absorbed the cost there but uh Fallout 3 I was a- able to get the code for like the combined two for the price of one. And same thing for Gears of War, right? I bought the, like, total combined pack for about the same, maybe a little more, than all of them cost separately, uh, each one individually at launch. And so that was actually, I was able to prolong it and pay a significantly, you know, reduced price for them. And so, uh, let's see, our next question is, uh, what size should they be? Obviously, uh, Alex, you're a big fan of the, like, we consider the giant honking pack like Undead Nightmare, Ballad of Gay Tony, Skyrim Dawn Guard, right? Is that um, is that the best approach? Yeah, as uh, y- yes, but with an asterisk. I think you have to qualify it because, as John said before, it depends on what kind of, kind of game it is. If it's a, a primarily narrative based game, mostly single player, like Grand Theft Auto. Fallout, uh, Oblivion, or Skyrim, those kind of games. I think as much as you can put into it, I mean, and to be fair, I definitely, I want quality. But if you can make it big, make it good, and just basically just extend the life of the game in that way, I I want it as much as possible because I want to be able to just play it and not have to wait Expansion packs. The Red Baron in the live stream said expansion packs, not, not DLCs. You know, we've been trained to call it, you know, expansion packs like where you, you know, grew up. Well, I grew up with on PC games. Exactly. That goes back to when I, yeah, when I was little playing Age of Mythology. And then when I was done with that, playing uh, Titans, I can't even remember what it was called, but um, like the expansion to that or uh, the expansion to Realm Total War. Barbarian Innovation that just adds a ton more content. And, I mean, like I said, 
I mean, the more the better because you have more to do and it's more fun. But the reason I qualified it, obviously, is because if it's like a, you know, a, a primarily multiplayer kind of game, then that's not going to work. And you need, I, like we talked about before, more fine-tuning versus just, here, take more stuff. Yeah, because uh, things like Undead Nightmare, I think we've said this before, but wasn't Undead Nightmare released kind of as a standalone game for Red Dead Redemption at almost was able to be its own thing because there was just so much there that Rockstar could actually spin it off like that. And then, uh, obviously, we have to talk about you know, how much. The, co- the Call of Duty model is ridiculously extractive. You know, you get three maps for 1,200 Microsoft points, and I, 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 I do think it's kind of a shame that people are just eating it up so avidly. Like you said, Don, uh, John, the point where it hits 20 just kind of goes up like that and uh, people buying the subscription service just to just to get more of it well i mean if people are buying it that's what that's what it is <laughs> i mean yeah i mean what would what would you pay for it in if you had your way how much would you pay for a map pack three call of duty map packs or no just i mean three maps three maps yeah i wouldn't because i'm not playing it competitively I mean that's as simple as it gets. Like if I was if I was really really into it, there, there's a point in time when I would pay for it. But right now I wouldn't. Um, uh, so if, if I was really hardcore into Call of Duty or Halo or something like that, I think two to three dollars per map is on the upper end of what I'd feel comfortable paying. So if there was five maps, four hundred Microsoft points, about five dollars for like three maps and. 800 if there are like six of them and especially if they're all brand new not kind of reskins of ones from the last game and then story dlc i've always been more of a kind of a narrative guy i can understand it going for 800 if there's enough to warrant it but then i can also see like how i got fallout and gears of war a bunch of them getting rolled together into this pack later for like you know the gold edition or the game of the year edition yeah, I mean, I just on Steam, I just got Fallout New Vegas Ultimate Edition, which has uh, all of like the I think it's the three big DLCs as well as the two sort of like armor and guns pack things. Got all of that for like ten bucks. I mean, and when you consider the uh, like the overall price or all those things, it's sixty dollars for the game, then probably fifteen dollars for each of these DLCs. So you're looking at you know already over a hundred dollars. Um, before you even add in this other little mini uh, DLCs, I guess you call them. And I got that for 10 bucks later on. Exactly. And I, I feel like, from my perspective, guns and the like, they should just give it to you for free. That's that, But that's just me. Uh, well, and it's especially like a game like uh, Fallout, when you don't need to pay for it if you have it on PC because of the modding community, which is giving it to you for free. I think a big part of it... DLC pricing structure is because of the ecosystem that Microsoft has developed on the Xbox and same thing with Sony. If they had, if developers and publishers had more control, then everything would be a lot cheaper because you can't release stuff for free on the Xbox or it's harder. Like you can do one free DLC or whatever it is. Um, And you can't have free to play games competing with the full retail games. I mean, the prices are just much higher on the Xbox for every piece of content. Exactly. I think Simon mentioned this uh, 
another time we were talking about um, like an old Call of Duty game. If it was 800 Microsoft points to purchase some DLC on it back in 2005, it's going to be 800 even still today. Because like you say, Microsoft doesn't give the publishers that control over their content. It's really just sort of a very rigid, this is the price this is where it stays, and you can't Well, I'd like it. to bring that into the broader context of what we were actually talking about last week, which was this uh, viewer sent us an email talking about Steam, probably Valve wanting to get into the console race because they see that Microsoft and Sony have these rigid price structures. And, I mean, how much better would it be? How much more would people sell, or how much more would developers sell if Steam brought their basically fire sale price structuring to xbox right what if you had these indie game specials or fallout new vegas with all dlc for ten dollars on the console right i'd buy that right now but it's not just that it's the free to play it's league of legends it's tribes it's the shitty facebook games we all ignore free to play stuff makes more money like when you look at the top grossing iphone apps it's always free to play stuff it's not I mean, like, Angry Birds will be up there because it's $1.99 and it's the best-selling game on in iPhone history or whatever. But, the like, the Zynga stuff, the free-to-play stuff, is the most profitable. Freemium model, where it's basically free and then you premium up for, you know, additional content. I think... But it's, it's not even additional content. It's that same content faster. Like that, it could yeah. Sometimes it is like faster. It's not paid DLC because you can earn that stuff for free. It's getting that free stuff faster. It, that that's all it is, and it's a very important distinction because you're talking about these DLC packs that have hours of unique original content. But then with the free to play stuff, it's like you earn the gold, the in-game gold points. 10 times faster to earn to unlock the characters or the farm whatever to uh to share with your friends faster well um i think right now we should uh go on to basically i think what's the biggest question it's this content licensing right and i mean you know you did talk about us being a niche case because not everyone has these multiple uh consoles and things but I think there's there's something to be uh, said here about how they could improve it. Because let's say I have a DLC, and, I mean, something as simple as my brother wants to play it, you know? And so that's why I think that um, I'll give Microsoft and Sony a pass as far as this current gen is concerned. But then I really want to see them tackle this and handle it well uh, for the next gen. And if not, I'll be really disappointed. Um... But what I what I think they could do is you download a DLC pack and all the profiles on that hard drive have access to it. And that's okay because let's say your friend wants to come over, then he can have access to it. But as soon as he goes back to his own console, uh, he doesn't have it anymore. And that way that solves the problem that you had with Mass Effect 2 where you had the Cerberus network and then you had to re-download it again, spend another $10, which it'll stay $10 till the end of time, we should add. Um, and so uh, hopefully it's beneficial to the players, and it should also be beneficial to the developers because that's this approach is exactly how I got two more of my friends to buy Minecraft for the Xbox. They downloaded their profiles onto my console. Well, like, this is awesome. 
and then they went and then they bought it uh, on their own Xboxes. Which is why I think if you have this kind of trickle-down DLC covers everyone on a single hard drive, uh, I think everyone would benefit from that. I don't know what you think about that. I think it's also a pretty limited case study, but uh, I, I think that there could be better ways built in to share, and I think that's going to be a big part of the next um, the next iteration of the Xbox console is being able to share. Where um, I don't think you're going to get what you're imagining, where it's just free reign, free access to the full version of Minecraft for every gamer tag that signs into your console. I think it's going to be more like, you know, uh, I, I don't know if you have an iPhone or an iPad and you play the iPhone games, but like, you know, they're, they're constantly asking you to tweet out that you're playing the game or like it on Facebook. I, I think if they're smart, uh, they're going to really step that up and make it much easier to invite your friends to play the game with you. Um, and Wasn't quickly. that what Xbox is currently trying to do with like beacons and stuff? You can set a beacon on a game and it'll do a little Facebook notification every time you kind of, if your friends pop in a game, there's that an initial notification that says, this person uh, wants other people to play this game. I usually don't take advantage of that, but it's there. Isn't there like a, an achievement or a, an unlock or something in Minecraft if you share a screenshot on Facebook? Actually, I think there might actually be that achievement. I think isn't it like you can get like a like a, a yeah dashboard? some some kind of I, I think they're called call props now. or like avatar item yeah like or background or some or whatever just by sharing it to Facebook. Yeah. You said John, you said that you know. They d- you didn't think they'd implement this kind of one person has it, so therefore everyone can use it. There's but, no way. I mean, I mean I, that, that's not even on Steam now. Well, know. that's that's ex- that's what happened. That's what's on the Xbox right now, right? Because my my friends can download their profiles mm-hmm. onto my hard drive, and then they can just press start in Minecraft, and oh, then they can really? they can play. Yeah. yeah well, like I, I have Minecraft locally on on my Xbox, and uh, when my when my brothers are uh, playing with me, when they're around, when they're playing with me, they just have their accounts on my Xbox. And even though they don't own a copy of the game, since they're locally on my on my console, yeah. they okay. can play it with me. Or and honest and the well the the weird thing about it was I thought it would be locked to only when they're playing with me. But I've had it before where I'm not even signed in. It's just the two mm-hmm. of them playing, like without my account or anything, just their two accounts, and they're playing with the game. So I think it's probably tied more to the console than to it the account. It is tied to the console. It absolutely is tied to the console, which is why I didn't completely understand the way that you were explaining that at first because a lot of a lot of times I transfer my um, like I've I have i purchased items on 10 different consoles probably at this point. So, like and like when I move my profile from console to console, it doesn't transfer that way. So, I think that's also a big problem. So yeah, but I mean, with the like you know you know the new way they have it where you don't have to like recover a gamer tag, you can just sign in on a console. Like it's a lot easier to move around. I mean, do you think that's sort of foreshadowing a uh, I guess a, an approach where things are more tied so. to the account in yeah in like in the cloud? I mean, we've seen they're sort of they're pushed to try and put more things into the cloud, save like cloud saves, uh, moving your account more easily. And I'm wondering if that's sort of that the future. And that's why. Um, sorry, that was confusing. But 
we see this already with content, but what about these kind of online passes and unlock codes that we see right now with mostly EA games, you know? What if that was then tied to everyone on that particular console? That's kind of where I was going with that. Like, that would solve your problem with the Cerberus network and things like that. And then, yeah, talking about cloud storage, also, I think the easiest way to do that is, is if it's tied to your account, then basically when you transfer all the content licenses, which are just kind of kilobytes of data, then those can get transferred, and that's not very taxing on the network. When you download it onto someone else's console, then basically there's the little unlock in Marketplace that allows you to pull all the things that you've downloaded onto your account onto that hard drive. But as soon as you leave, then basically that little lock turns back on, and then the other person can't use it because obviously they didn't buy it. That's where I think it's going, and I I just want to see it open up to different categories and become more versatile. Uh, that's where I want kind of this. Uh, all, it's almost like DRM for games in a in a way. Uh, that's where I want that to go. I hate I hate DRM, but so does everybody. Obviously, yeah, there's no perfect system, and all the big companies are gonna err on the side of being too conservative or protecting their stuff. So it's never going to be what we all want. It's always going to be a hassle. Um, I mean, very, very rarely do companies like Netflix come along that, that just make it super easy for 10 people to share one login and like one set of login information. Um, and then know. even then you have your know, net neutrality getting throttled by Comcast and also, yeah. also still yeah. not perfect. Christ, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of forces at play, more than just the console makers. I mean, it's a lot of the developers, too, and, and their wants and needs. And yeah, who knows? So we spent a long, long time on this topic. Uh, obviously, we want whoever's listening right now, we want your feedback. If you're listening later in the week, because that's how long it's going to take me to kind of put this <laughs> entire patchwork of audio clips together, uh, we want your feedback on kind of all of these questions, where you think DLC will go where you want it to go versus where you think it'll actually go as well. And uh, just 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 to respond to uh, somebody I saw on the live stream earlier, I didn't get to bring it up. Uh, don't get me wrong, I don't think that uh, mods, especially for like Bethesda games, can replace DLC. But I mean, I think uh, we were talking there more about like gun packs, just like those little things, not like full blown like Operation Anch- uh, Anchorage or anything like that. But I mean, as far as like adding in new guns or little things like that. I definitely think mods can go a long way to uh, at least maybe not replacing, but offering an alternative to those those little like nickel and dime you kind of gun packs. But I mean, as far as the the uh, the big DLCs go, I don't think mods can replace that at all. So just clearing that up. Uh, let me stop you really quick. I'm actually gonna head out. I'm uh, I'm exhausted. <laughs> I've had a long day. I've streamed for like oh probably coming up on six hours now. Uh, that makes sense. So, actually, how about that? How about this? We'll actually cut off this topic and save it okay. for next time. And that way, people on the live stream won't miss anything, and everyone will have the, kind of the same experience, because it's actually tomorrow for us. Yeah, yeah, you guys are way behind me, so I'm sure you're exhausted, too. All right, so do you have any... Um, I, guess, I guess I'll end my audio file and just say, thanks for listening, everybody, and be sure to check out uh, the next Two Chimps whenever Dan gets back. All right, thanks. Good night, everybody.
Bells, bells are small.